Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Lee Boyd and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world. Welcome to another scholarly. Ooh. You haven't um, said that before. Book review-ish. Yeah. Episode of FNO InsureTech. Yeah. I am your co-host. They haven't been able to get rid of me, though they've tried. Rob yeah. Beller. And I'm here him. with my other co-host, who they've tried to get rid of, but haven't been able to, Lee Boyd. Hi, Rob. How are you today? I'm great. I'm all excited about the fact that we're kind of doing a book review here, right? We are. It is a it is a real book. It's a real <laughs> insurance this is, book. This isn't a book that's like yeah. 14 pages no, for, no, for, no. for my grandson. No. No, there, there are no drawings in this book. There's no, there are no drawings in this book, no pictures. But it's a fascinating book but and a, subject. A ton of interesting information. You know, we are such an enormously prominent podcast. Yeah, huge. All 12 people who listen to our podcast. Thank you. Would certainly agree with that. Yes, thank you very much, by the way. Yeah, you know who you are. Yeah, our our parents. <laughs> Well, Our aunts no. and uncles. No. And Astrid. And um, We get approached with different uh, opportunities to interview people all the time. And, and we got approached for this interview. And we looked at each other and said, wow, this seems really interesting. But maybe it's not exactly up our alley. And so we asked the third party to send us the book. Right. Right. We're going to talk about the book. Let's send the book. Send the book. And so they did. And we saw the book and immediately said, we need to have Dr. Josephine Wolf from Tufts University on the podcast to talk about her book, Cyber Insurance Policy, Rethinking Risk in an Age of Ransomware, Computer Fraud, Data Breaches, and Cyber Attacks. We had to have her on because cyber is huge. Cyber is something that everyone thinks about. Everybody who owns a company or works with a company, you all think about it. And the insurance behind it is something that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people, myself included, uh, it's sometimes over our head. How do you price these things? What are you doing? What are the trends? Right? What's mm -hmm. the history of cyber mm -hmm. insurance? What's the threat landscape? And she's on today to talk about that and give us an introduction to the book. We are here to educate you and see if we can't take 45 minutes of your time and put it to good use. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. So let's do it. Let, let's jump into this interview. Let's not waste anyone else's time any longer and get right to our interview with Dr. Josephine Wolf, the author of Cyber Insurance Policy. Hey, everybody, we are here with a special guest, a very unique guest for our podcast. For those of you who know our podcast, we don't have a founder. We don't have a carrier person. We don't have a venture capitalist, rightly. Right. No, I don't. I don't think we do. We'll we find an, out. But I don't think we so. have an author. An we do. author. 
and a college professor and um, an authority on the world of cyber insurance. Today we have with us Josephine Wolf, who just recently uh, published a book called Cyber Insurance Policy, Rethinking Risk in an Age of Ransomware, Computer Fraud, Data Breaches, and Cyber Attacks. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Where do we find you today? I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near the campus of Tufts University, where I teach. Oh, that's cool. What do you teach at Tufts? So I teach cybersecurity policy. I'm interested in questions of who pays for cyber attacks and whether the entities that end up paying for them are also the ones who are in a position to do a better job defending against them, and if not, sort of how you reconfigure the policy landscape so that those incentives are aligned with the stakeholders who can do a better job of defense. Wow. We're we're dying to hear all about that because we find cyber insurance to be this overwhelming, huge problem that, I mean, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? I mean, isn't that kind of... It's so intimidating. It's so intimidating. And I'll say it was really intimidating for me starting this project because I'm not an insurance expert. I don't come out of the insurance world like you guys do. I come out of the cybersecurity world. So the project I did before this one was sort of tracing the aftermath of a bunch of serious cyber attacks and trying to understand kind of after all the lawsuits and the settlements and the dust settles, who ends up paying for what and and trying to trace out that kind of narrative of, who is responsible for this? And and is that, are we doing that right? Are we holding the right people responsible? And what a lot of people said to me as I was doing that project was, you know, it's a big mess right now, the kind of liability around cybersecurity, uh, which was a big part of what my project was, is sort of trying to sort that out. But what's going to happen is the insurers are going to come in in three, five, 10 years, and they're going to sort of sort this out, right? The way we manage expensive risk as a society is the insurance firms collected a lot of data and they build these models and they sell policies and they're going to figure this out in the next few years as they get more data. And so I thought, okay, well, if that's if that's what the future is, then then I should really learn something about this industry. Um, but I came in very much as, as a novice around insurance and sort of learned the language and, and learned a lot of the, the processes very much new starting just in the past four years or so with this project. Well, we're thrilled to have you in the family. Uh, it's not unlike Welcome how many of insurance. us come. Many of us come to insurance through kind of a side door. And, yeah. uh, but then we, we fall into it because as, as I'm sure you found, it's a wonderful and fascinating enterprise. And so let's start so that it, everybody knows where we are to begin with. Let's, let's ask you to take a minute and tell us about the book, Cyber Insurance Policy, and what the book is about and who, who the audience is for the book. Sure. So To my mind, the book is really about three things. Um, And the first one is really a history of cyber insurance and understanding kind of where did these policies start in the very late 1990s, around 1997? How do they evolve over the past 25 years in terms of who's buying them, what kinds of cyber-related risks they cover, where the sort of, you know, third-party coverage starts to expand into first-party coverage, how 
the policies you can buy today in 2022 are different, really quite dramatically different from the kinds of policies you could buy even just 10 years ago. Um, and, and just trying to sort of set out how did this industry come to be and give some sense of how fast it's changed. Because I do think that sort of when you line it up against other areas of insurance, you do see a, a pretty remarkable timeline in cyber insurance in terms of how quickly insurers have been trying to ramp up and not just sell more policies, but sell policies that cover a much wider range of risks than they were doing 5, 10, 15 years ago. So that's the first section is, is that history piece. And it leads into the second section, which is looking at claims disputes looking at sort of the a bunch of examples and in, in lawsuits in many cases where companies file claims related to cybersecurity incidents, right? In some cases, it's a disruptive cyber attack, like the NotPetya attack by Russia in 2017. In some cases, it's sort of a business email compromise or computer fraud case, something like company gets an email that says, hey, you know, here's an invoice for a million dollars, please transfer this to me. And the company goes ahead and does it. And then they file a claim with their insurer. And they have sometimes these disputes about, well, was that really a cybersecurity breach? Or was that just you being an idiot and, and responding to a phishing email? And, and those distinctions really matter in terms of sort of do we cover this or do we not based on the language of the policy. So there's a section that really covers sort of where did the disputes come up in this space? And there are a couple different areas of that. And how have we seen the insurers trying to sort of carve out, here's what we do cover, here's what we don't cover, in this incredibly sort of diverse and complicated risk space, right? I think one of the things that's different about cyber insurance than a lot of other kinds of insurance is you're not talking about one type of risk. You're not just talking about fires. You're not just talking right. about floods. You're talking about something that can look like a data breach, something that can look like ransomware, something that can look like a denial of service attack. And it, it can be very hard to sort of define, here's what's included in this policy, here's what's not included in this policy when that threat landscape is shifting so much. Mm -hmm. And then the third part mm -hmm. of the book is really about policy. Um, and, and by policy, I mean kind of public policy, the role of government, the role of regulators in this space, and trying to understand what has been the kind of public-private interaction around cyber insurance, really kind of just over the course of the past decade, which is, I would say, when when regulators start getting interested in this market and thinking a little bit about what the role for regulators might be and, and what kinds of steps might help make this uh, a more functional or more productive market for, for both the, the carriers, but also for the policyholders. How fascinating. Just wow. just a, a, a entire walkthrough there, right? Uh, I, I want to go back to the history. I want to go to the beginning. And and when when was the first cyber insurance policy sold? And 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 why? Why was it like? Why was that done? And who so, was the smart? And who was the yeah. smart people that did it? So I can I can answer that question. It's a guy named Steve Haas who it develops in 1997 this Internet Security Liability product, and it's the first kind of dedicated insurance product for internet and cyber related risks. Um, and it's it's launched at this big party in Hawaii at an insurance convention called Breach on the Beach. And it's basically about covering data breaches, which is what many of these earliest sort of cyber insurance policies cover. It says, look, if you know somebody steals a bunch of payment card numbers from your servers and you get sued, 
we'll help cover the lawyer's fees, we'll help cover the settlement costs, you know, the, the really expensive things around those data breaches are generally those third party legal costs. And, and so that's a big part of what that policy and what a lot of those sort of early policies in the late 90s, early 2000s cover. And, and alongside that, I would just highlight part of the reason that's what companies are interested in buying and carriers are interested in selling is because data breaches of personal information are the only cybersecurity incidents that anybody has to report at that time, right? There's sort of a, a wave of data breach notification laws coming out state by state in the early 2000s. And as those are being passed, companies, especially retailers, right, the companies that collect a lot of payment card uh, information and store it for a long time, are worried about, well, what if this happens to us? They're reading about it in the news. And so there's some interest in, in not every sector, but in a couple sectors and making sure you've got some of that third party coverage for data breaches. And that's, I would say, really where the industry starts, right alongside the start of kind of cybersecurity regulation. And policymakers starting to make some early laws about, well, if, if somebody's data gets stolen, there should be a law that the company has to tell them that that happened. And so tell me this, have cyber attacks gotten more complicated or is it just that there's more of them? I, I guess talk to me a little bit about the history of cyber, you know, between, say, 1997 and, and present day. What have we seen change? So I'd say both the attacks have gotten more complicated and there are more of them and they're used for a lot more different things, okay. right? So you think about that kind of early payment card breach model, um, it's it's usually a financially motivated thing, right? You've got criminals who want to make money stealing payment cards. There's a, a kind of narrow model of who would be doing that sort of thing, why would they be doing it? And you think about where we are today and there's a much more diverse set of actors in this space, right? You've still got financially motivated cyber criminals, of course, but you've also got a whole bunch of governments that are mm -hmm. using cyber operations for a variety of reasons, right? It could be to collect intelligence and perform espionage, but it could also be to target critical infrastructure of a country you're at war with or something like that. And so trying to kind of map out that landscape only gets more complicated as more different criminals and independent hackers and governments start trying to kind of ramp up their capabilities in this space and use them for a whole variety of different reasons in ways that we're often not very good at predicting, right? Like, could we have predicted that North Korea was going to go in and hack Sony Pictures in the way that it did? That wasn't something we really had a, a good model or precedent for. Right. I have to ask you about, and, and, and Lee brought it up, the threat landscape. It just seems to be nearly infinite. I don't even know how to ask the question. Talk to us about the threat landscape today and how that drives it. It has to drive how the policies are written and, and what's covered. You just don't know. There's a new, clever danger right around d d coming tomorrow or next week. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a, a hugely important piece of thinking about this whole area is the whole part of cybersecurity where you wrap your head around what the threats are is actually kind of a whole methodology and expertise area on its own that we call threat modeling. And you people take classes and specialize in kind of, if I'm sitting in a big company, how do I enumerate all of the possible threats, which as you say, is you know a very, very, very long list, and then go from that to saying, okay, here's what I'm going to prioritize. Here's what I think is sort of most likely or most important and kind of 
boil that down to something manageable. Um, so you're absolutely right. There's no kind of comprehensive, okay, we've mapped out every single threat in a policy and here are the ones we can cover and here are the ones we can't. It's much more sort of we divide them up into some categories and then something happens that the insurers hadn't really anticipated. And sometimes there's a long legal battle, right? We're seeing some of that now. And so I think it's very much a sort of evolving area in terms of, first of all, there are threats that we can sort of talk about that haven't happened yet, right? So I could say to you, you know, if the electric grid in the Northeast of the United States went down, that's something people have thought about, but it's not something we've seen happen. And if we did see it happen, we don't know exactly what it would look like or who would be behind it or, or what the impacts might be. And so that part of it is hugely difficult. And I think in the insurance space, what I find so interesting is insurers have this notion of all risk insurance, right? Of sort of, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll cover everything except what we carve out, which on the one hand would seem really relevant for a domain like cyber. But, and I think this is where, where we sometimes see the insurers struggling when we think about all risk policies, those are usually policies that specify a very particular class of assets that you're protecting, like property, right? And you say sort of all of the risks to this particular property are going to be covered. Whereas when right. you're talking about cyber, you're actually not even sort of specifying necessarily a particular kind of property, right? It could be damage to data. It could be damage to operations. It could be damage to a whole bunch of different things. And so you have this sort of even broader sense of a whole bunch of different possible risks that could cause a whole bunch of different kinds of harm. And trying to really drill down and list those out in a, a clear way is hugely difficult, right? I, I really sort of, I, I think in the book, it comes across that I'm criticizing the cyber insurance industry, and sometimes I am, but I'm also hugely sympathetic to what a massive challenge that is. As people who work in the insurance industry every day and have for a long time, one of the things we know is the insurance industry is pretty good at being clever and protecting itself so that it's still here. You're, looking, you're talking about an industry that's hundreds of years old, um, that has, in fact, significant players in it who are hundreds of years old. So they're adept. The insurance industry is adept at writing policies that won't bankrupt it. Uh, you you must have saw you must have seen that 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 there that there's a lot of cleverness going into this, even though it's quite dynamic. That they include language in policies to kind of cover that that whole enormous gray area that's out there. Is that the case? I think that when it comes to cyber insurance, the, the protection that the carriers are doing is mostly in the limits on these policies, right? I think okay. that sort of the ways that they're protecting themselves are largely about not selling very large policies. And, and you see this when you talk to the companies trying to buy cyber insurance, right? They'll say to you, you know, I'll buy cyber insurance from literally anybody who will sell me some because we yeah. can't even get close to how much we want. And I think that part of that, I mean, I, I don't think that's a bad decision on the part of carriers to sell smaller policies, but I think part of that is a failure to sort of find other strategies that they really believe in and that they really have empirical evidence to suggest they can use to manage losses, right? And it, I think it, it a little bit hints at this sense that they're not sure how to model this risk or, or predict it very effectively. And so they want to kind of make sure they're not selling too large a policy that they might end up having to pay out for a whole bunch of policyholders at once, potentially. 
Do you have some thoughts on what those strategies or one of those strategies may be beside we're just going to limit our exposure at a maximum number? So the dream, right, the ideal for people like me who care about cybersecurity was that the insurers were going to come in, they were going to start selling these policies, and they were going to collect a whole bunch of claims data on what cyber incidents are happening. They were going to get a really good handle on the threat landscape. They were going to say, you know, okay, we know exactly how many ransomware attacks are going on. We know which safeguards companies had in place that actually worked to prevent them and which safeguards didn't. They were going to put together all that claims data. And then they were going to use it to go back to their policyholders and say, okay, moving forward, you need to do X, Y, and Z to protect your systems. And that was going to kind of reduce everybody's risk. And so so for people who from, come from my background of trying to figure out what really works for cybersecurity and how do we get people to do it, insurance kind of seemed like the dream, right? You get them to yeah. figure out what's the equivalent of seatbelts, what's the equivalent of smoke detectors. And then instead of going through the horrible long process of passing laws and standards and whatnot, they just go to their policyholders and say, this is required in order for, for us to sell you coverage. And so I think that is, that is still something that people hope for and that insurers sometimes say, you know, we're, we're working towards that as we collect more data. But I think that's the part that has not really happened in terms of, of trying to find an alternative to just limiting the, the maximum of policies. If you saw strategies that insurers really believed in to drive down risk, then I think they would be willing to sell larger policies to companies that met those security criteria. And I think instead, they they look at a lot of their claims data and they say, you know, encryption, multi-factor authentication, all these things we're requiring, they're great, but we're still seeing companies with all of that stuff in place get breached. And, and so we're not confident that we can sell them really large policies because it's just not clear that the correlation between driving down risk is is there with those those security controls we're requiring. And isn't it just also a problem that one little mistake, <laughs> one little slip of a protocol, some yo-yo at a desk somewhere who didn't pay attention one day because he, whatever, and one little slip and it blows all the structural adherence that had been done. Yeah, and I think another way to, to say that is there's tremendous nuance in the security sort of posture of any organization. So you go out, you apply for cyber insurance, you're going to get probably a long questionnaire of, you know, mostly yes or no questions. Do you have an incident response plan? Do you use two-factor authentication? Do you encrypt data at rest, right? All of these things. Um, and you're going to sit there and you're probably going to answer yes, 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 right? Because that's, that's how you get cyber insurance. And you're not going to be lying for the most part, right? Um, but if you are Colonial Pipeline and you answer the question, you know, do you use multi-factor authentication? You say, yes, we do. Uh, and then it turns out that there were some older accounts that nobody remembered to deactivate that come, came online before two-factor and somebody uses one to compromise your pipeline, right? There's, there's a sort of complicated set of, of answers to these questions that it's really hard to glean from a questionnaire, right? How could an insurer ever have known that without coming in and sort of doing a full audit of Colonial Pipeline systems themselves? And how can you do that with a product you're trying to scale up to thousands and thousands of customers? So with that, are you finding that insurance companies are delaying and paying their claims 
because of these these legal challenges or new legal challenges coming up that insurers are saying, hey, yeah, I know that we might owe that, but now because of this new information, we've got to dig deeper and see if we actually do. Is that going on? So there's definitely some claim denial happening. I would say there's not a ton of it. There are, I think, fairly strategic efforts okay. on the part of the insurers to decide which battles they want to fight here. Yeah. And and often, um, I think the ones that actually sort of go to court and advance to the point of, of everybody spending a lot of time and money on, on the dispute are really the ones that the insurers are hoping will set a strong precedent for them for a, yeah. a very common class of attacks. Um, so I would say that's more common in what I saw than kind of the, the individual arguments over, we're not going to cover this because you said you did X and you didn't. Those, those tend to sort of wrap up more quickly, sometimes mediated through brokers and folks like that. Um, and, and that, I think, has been uh, an easier process than some of the bigger disputes. I see. I want to go back to where, where you were talking about companies saying, I'll buy cyber wherever I can get it. Is there a shortage of cyber insurance out there? Capacity. Capacity. So I think it depends on whether you think that this risk is priced appropriately, which is a question that I would say nobody can answer very, very reliably right now, myself included. Um, there's certainly more demand than there is supply, right? Whether that means there's a shortage in the sense that we'd all be better off if there was more cyber insurance available is a little harder for me to say. Um, but what I think is interesting about that is we've seen in the past few years just tremendously rapid increases in the price of premiums, right? So there's a sort of spike in, in 2019, 2020 in ransomware claims, and the profitability of cyber insurance starts diminishing pretty rapidly in a way that makes insurers very nervous. And so the premiums shoot up, right? You talk to people who say, oh, there was a 200% increase in my premium, 250% increase in my premium. And even so, I still talk to a lot of companies who say, I can't get as much as I want to, right? I mean, I'm I'm angry that it costs so Mm -hmm. much. I don't understand where this increase came from when I invested so much money in security last year. But even so, I'd like to be able to buy more than I can. So with that, I'd like to jump back to where you were talking about the data and how your dream was that the insurance companies would collect this data and they'd be able to come out and do a lot with it. Is there a place for a third party to come in and aggregate this data and, and educate the public? Is there a need for that? And if so, is there any any profit that could be found in that or would that be a nonprofit type of situation? So I think it's a, an interesting question. I don't know the answer. I do know that there have been several attempts at this, and there are some ongoing now. The United States government is in, you know, five, six years ago was in discussions with some of the insurers about, is there a government role in trying to create a yeah. cyber incident database repository type thing where different companies could sort of turn in aggregate information about cybersecurity incidents and have it be anonymized. Because Mm -hmm. one of the big fears with reporting cybersecurity incidents is, you know, you're going to report a ransomware attack and then you're going to get all this unwanted bad publicity and all of that. So there was a little bit of interest in sort of whether the Department of Homeland Security or someone like that could help facilitate some kind of clearinghouse for incident data. Um, As it turns out, there's perhaps not a huge appetite for reporting that data voluntarily, which was the the idea at the time. Um, there's now sort of a, an industry consortium trying to do something similar to say, you know, can we pool some of this insurance data 
and all learn something more from it. That's, that's a relatively new initiative. We'll see what comes of that. Um, but I would say people are still trying to figure out, first of all, whether this is something that the insurers are willing to share, right? Yeah. There's, there's discussion of, we wish we had better data. We'd like somebody to help us with the data. It's not always clear when push comes to shove that they really do right. want to share the claims data with each other. Um, and, and then I think there's an open question of even if we can get to that point, even if we can get to the point of bringing together the data from all these different insurers, can we learn anything useful from it? And right. that, I think, is also a hard question because I would say on the whole, the insurers have not been able to learn a lot of useful stuff from their own data. So maybe you put it together and it becomes more useful, but mm-hmm. maybe there are actually some, some more fundamental flaws there. What about the cybersecurity industry? I mean, I would think that they play a key role in this, right? Absolutely. Their job, ultimately, their goal, I should say, is to make sure this doesn't happen. Isn't it kind of that simple? So it's that simple and it's also that complicated, right? So you've got these cybersecurity companies. Um, there are a lot of them out there. Mm-hmm. If, you've, if you've had any exposure to sort of cybersecurity conferences or industry symposium, you maybe have some sense of how many companies there are that want to, to sell you various things to secure your systems and networks. Many of them now partner in some capacity with some of these insurers. Right. So when you buy cyber insurance, you often get a list of sort of here are recommended vendors for incident response, or we, we think that everybody should be using this intrusion detection system or something, something along those lines. Um, what I think is, is really striking about those partnerships, and I write a little bit about this in the book because I think those partnerships are really interesting, is they're often not linked to any real change in your premium. Right. So, so the insurers will say, you know, okay, we want you to partner with this company or we want to do a scan run by, by this assessment firm. Um, but that won't actually change the question of how much you have to pay. So it's not, it's, so it's not like having a fire alarm or <laughs> in your house. Exactly. Or, uh, right. It's, it's, I think it's a little bit in the spirit of experimentation to a lot of the insurers, right? They're like, we'll try partnering with these different security firms. Um, I think they feel that the really good incident response firms who can sort of get in there when something goes wrong and help recover are often helpful for their policyholders and worth sort of being able to point them to. But I, I don't think there's always a lot of confidence that these are partners who can actually reduce risk. And the security firms themselves, some of whom are really good, don't have a lot at stake when something goes wrong, right? They're not the ones who are financially liable most of the time. Right. Are the insurance companies partnering with these vendors to actually go in and mitigate the losses after an attack? Uh, Or do they rely on the companies or the individuals to hire their own people? So usually the way this works is the insurers will send their policyholders when something goes wrong to one of their panel of sort of approved lawyers. Okay. And so the first thing that will happen is you'll be directed to a lawyer. In some cases, the like 1-800 number on your insurance policy will actually just directly go to, to one of their law firms. And the lawyer will then kind of direct the process of hiring a forensic responder who comes in and tries to recover systems and, and get stuff back online and, and kind of coordinate the whole process. And I think one of the interesting things from a data collection standpoint, right? That question of like, well, why don't we have better data? Why, why haven't the insurers been able to learn more from these incidents? Is that often because a lawyer is coordinating this whole process, a lot of the findings, a lot of the documentation is actually shielded 
under work product doctrine or attorney client privilege. And the, the law firm doesn't want to share it with the insurer, doesn't want to give them the incident report or something like that, because they worry then it could be discoverable if there's litigation, it could be used against them. Um, and so, so there's this sort of complicated dynamic in which you're, you're trying to protect against possible future litigation, but by keeping things a little bit more protected in that space, you're also not able to learn from the incidents as much as you might want to. So let's talk about CGL. Sure. I'm sure, and I know you have a whole section in your book, many people say, but I have liability insurance, right? And what, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So one of the things that really interested me in sort of walking through some of the claims disputes here was the, to my mind, kind of systematic way in which the insurers try to carve cyber-related stuff out of existing lines of insurance. And I think that's, again, very understandable because you've got these big sort of established, important lines in your company, and you don't want to risk them on this kind of volatile, uncertain area. And the, the one that I would say the insurers most effectively manage to say, we don't cover any cybersecurity incidents uh, under this existing line is commercial general liability insurance. And you see a, a big fight about this uh, with the Sony breach, not the, not the North Korea one, but an earlier one in which a lot of PlayStation uh, users' personal information is stolen. And there's a lawsuit because the, the most litigious cybersecurity breaches are usually the breaches of personal information where people say, you know, you let my information be stolen. I, I deserve some compensation or, or something from you. And there are these big class action lawsuits. So Sony gets sued and they have data breach insurance, right? And this comes back to the question of sort of how much coverage can you get in these spaces, right? You see other cases where companies have some cyber insurance or breach insurance, but they don't have enough. So Sony is looking at this big class action suit and they say, well, we've also got a lot more under commercial general liability. Let's use that, right? Here we yeah. are, we're being sued. You know, we've, we've got commercial general liability, which covers certain kinds of, sort of publicizing information harm. So for instance, if Sony itself had accidentally released all of its customer information, that would have been covered under commercial general liability if they had then been sued for that. Um, and so they go to their insurer, they try to make this claim. The insurer says, no, absolutely not, right? This was not something that you did yourselves. This was something that came from an outside party, from the hackers. And they go to court and the, the court rules in favor of the insurers. Right. And says, this is, you know, this is not what commercial general liability insurance is for. Commercial general liability insurance is about stuff that your own employees do. And mm -hmm. this is, this is something, you know, the line that I, I remember from that court case is the hackers did this, right? This was not your fault. And what I think is so interesting about that case and about the sort of commercial general liability thing in general is you've got these two parallel lawsuits that Sony is involved in. One is their customers are suing them saying, this is all your fault. You let this data be stolen. And in that case, Sony is saying, no, 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 this isn't our fault, right? We're the victims. The hackers did this. Then you've got this other case on the other side of the country in New York, where Sony is saying, this was all our fault. We let this happen. Our commercial general liability insurance should cover this. Um, and the judge is saying, no, 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 this wasn't your fault, right? This was something entirely outside of your control. This isn't general wow. liability territory. Um, and so you sort of see there, I think, the first wave of insurers pushing back against the idea that their existing right. lines will cover data breaches or other cybersecurity-related incidents. Right. I mean, we saw in 
in uh, 94 with the Northridge earthquake, uh, I can draw a parallel in that um, m- most insurers were liable for earthquake damage as a result of the North- Northridge earthquake. What came out of that was a number of things, but g- generally speaking, what came out of it was um, an exclusion for earthquake or, or, or earth movement, right? And so once they learned, oh my gosh, we have this enormous liability here, we better clean that up. And uh, I, I'm sure you see that. I, I'm interested in the definition of cybercrime because I'm thinking to myself, it's one thing if uh, I'm in my, it's two o'clock in the morning, I'm in front of my computer, I'm hacking into a system somewhere versus uh, Russia, you know, that it, the, the cybercrime matter, that do the definitions matter based on the motivation of, uh, of, the, of the actor? So I would say what we see most is not that it matters what the motivation is, but that it matters how exactly a computer is involved in the crime. Um, One of the examples I talk about in the book is after the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme is discovered, one of the victims um, uh, hospital basically goes to their cybercrime coverage and is like, hey, this should be covered under cybercrime because Madoff's company made these fake invoices on a computer and sent them to us. And and that's, you know, that's why we fell for this. This was a computer scam. And of course, you know, you'd be hard pressed to commit a crime today that didn't involve a computer in some way. And so, so that's an extreme example, but there are a lot of cases in which you have a company saying, well, we got this email and that's why we made this transfer. That's why we did this. This is a computer crime. And often you see the insurers pushing back. And saying, well, it's not really a computer crime, right? That was you. You made the transfer. Um, and there was, you know, there was some earlier stuff. But at the end of the day, you pulled the trigger. This was your fault. And so I think there's, there's a sort of very automated version of computer crime, which insurers who, who sell computer crime policies usually or almost always do cover. And that is I hack into your computer remotely. I initiate a transfer of money from your bank account to me and you never have anything to do with it. Right. But there's a different version in which I send you an email tomorrow that says, um, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm attaching a screenshot of us. It was so much fun. And the screenshot is actually, you know, a little bit of malware that steals. Right. And so there's there's sort of a lot of versions of this where you're perhaps a little bit involved. You make a decision to open the attachment. You make a decision to, you know, pay an invoice that came in that you thought was real, but actually wasn't. And that's when you see the insurers start to push back and say, well, this wasn't exactly computer crime. There was a computer involved, sure, but you were also involved, and, and maybe this right. was really your fault. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. One question I want to ask you, are we still living in the Wild West when it comes to cyber attacks, or have we actually gained enough information to develop patterns around this? Or is it every day is a new day? We don't know where it's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. So I fall pretty squarely into the camp of believing that a lot of cyber attacks we see now do fall into existing patterns that we've seen before. That's not to say everything, right? I think one of the things that's hard about this space is that it sort of combines the very mundane, frequent, small scale incidents that you could, you know, consider analogous to like car accidents, 
Uh, there's a lot of business email compromise. There's a lot of sort of petty theft online, stuff like that. So you've got this high volume, small scale stuff, which I think is, you know, on the whole, reasonably predictable and reasonably sort of still in line with patterns from a year or two ago. But you've also got some really out of the box stuff sometimes, right? You've also got shutting down fuel pipelines. You've also got things like the solar wind cyber espionage campaign that infects thousands of, of different victims all at once. You've got the 2017 NotPetya attacks that yeah. shut down Merck, that shut down multinational companies all over the world. And so I think it's sort of, for, for insurers, it's sort of like trying to deal with, you know, both natural disaster type events in terms of large scale and frequent and also really frequent routine stuff that, that you're, you know, expecting to be seeing claims for all the time. And, and trying to sort of sort that out and figure out how do we balance all of these different types of incidents when they have such different profiles. Are you seeing that they're getting better at it? That they're getting better at evaluating the risk? They're bit, like you said, that, that you know, one of their key ways that they're dealing with it is by limiting the, the coverage amount. But are they getting better at writing it, better at dealing with it? So I think my answer to that is yes, but I think that my answer to that is they're getting better at it because they're gaining a stronger sense of humility about the limitations of their own ability to model cyber risk. And what I mean by that is I think, I mean, I think underwriters, many of them have always had some humility around this, some sense that kind of we're, we're making it up as we go along and we don't exactly know what the risk models should look like, but everybody else is selling stuff priced around this point. So we're selling stuff priced around this point. Um, I think there's more understanding now than there was four or five years ago that there is stuff that they really aren't going to be able to model very effectively anytime soon and that they need to be paying some more attention to what those exclusions look like and tailoring them a little bit better I think this is one of the things we're also seeing come out of the litigation around the NotPetya cyber attack in 2017, where you saw a couple insurers saying, we're not going to cover the business interruption costs because we're going to consider this an act of war, a warlike or hostile act, because it was Russia and it was sort of state-sponsored cyber attack. And you, you had a ruling back in December of last year of a court that, that was very skeptical of that interpretation, that really rejected it and said, you, know, you can't just decide that like every state-sponsored cyber attack is an act of war. Um, right. And so I think now you're seeing insurers go back. Lloyd's just released some guidance on this and say, okay, we need to, we need to kind of tailor our exclusions a little bit more to cyber and not just be relying on these legacy boilerplate exclusions that say, you know, we don't, we don't pay for war, things like that. And so in that sense, I think they're getting better at recognizing the limitations of what they can and can't cover, what they can and can't model. I'm not sure I think they are getting significantly better at the actual risk modeling piece. So I want to ask you a couple of questions in the time that we have left about you, because both Lee and I find this very interesting in a few different ways. First of all, how does one decide to write a book about cyber insurance policy? It's a good question. Um, I think, you know, for most projects, for me at least, you don't go in thinking you're going to write a book. You go in and you think, you know, maybe I'll write an article about cyber insurance. How much could there be to say, really? 
Um, and then four years later, you you discover that that article you thought you were writing is 85,000 words long and, and probably nobody's going to publish it as such. Um, and so I think it's really sort of, it was really a gradual process of discovering, oh, wow, there's there's a lot going on here. There's, you know, a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity to this market. And far from being kind of the simple future solution to private sector cybersecurity that I think I, I had imagined in 2015, 2016, I was, I was going to find, it was actually this, this quite messy and quite interesting space of trying to take existing risk management and risk modeling tools mm-hmm. and apply mm-hmm. them to these risks that I, you know, have studied my entire adult life and feeling like there's something, there's something about this type of risk that's different and weird and maybe harder and that doesn't conform to the tools that we've used to deal with other types of risk. And that was, that was really the impetus for the book was trying to get at that. Definitely different, weird, and harder. Yeah. Right. I mean, what, of course we can't predict the weather, but we know that the weather is coming. You, you know, you know, it's fall. These things are going to happen. Some of these things are generally speaking. Or you can read the weather through satellite imagery and data. This is this is just seems feels like the Wild West. It continues to feel that way. And it's also very interesting to me how it's used. You've written about Twitter, some about Twitter and some of the problems they've had. I mean, it's just all over the place. It's all over the place. And so uh, that that that's very interesting to me. I do want to ask you, how does it feel whenever you go to the MIT Press website and you see your book on the very front? Is that a pretty cool feeling? Oh, it's it's incredible. I think when you write a book, you're often emotionally invested and attached to it. Yeah. I think this one, for two reasons, was was particularly important to me. One was that it felt like such a niche topic, right? I couldn't believe they right. were going to let me publish a book about cyber insurance. I still can't believe anybody's you know ever going to read it besides my mother. Um, <laughs> and and it, it feels really incredible to sort of take this what felt like the weirdest, narrowest little corner of the space and and get to do so much with it. And the other piece of that is I wrote a a lot of this book kind of during the the darkest, most isolated part of the pandemic. And it was, it was so important to me. I can't tell you to kind of have a project that I cared about and I could throw myself into when I like couldn't leave the house. Um, And so, so so to see it out in the world is, is a really incredible feeling. That's amazing. Yeah. And how's the reception been? Um, reception's been, been really fantastic. I've been so thrilled that sort of people are reading it and engaging with it. And in some cases, I think especially kind of coming from the folks who sell cyber insurance, very violently disagreeing with it. And that's, that's actually really wonderful and really sort of useful and fruitful for me. Why are you getting that kind of reaction from that audience? And I'm sure not always, but sometimes. Yeah, certainly not always. I think that the sort of smaller startup-ier cyber insurance firms feel like they've really figured this out and and take some umbrage to the tone of the book, um, which is largely about kind of the ways in which cyber insurance has not lived up to the promise of helping us figure out how to deal with and prevent and mitigate cyber attacks. Um, and so I think that there's there's some resistance to that narrative. 
of saying, you know, well, just because the big carriers don't know how to do this doesn't mean that there you know, aren't some of us who are really tech savvy who do know how to do it. And that's, of course, fair, right? The book is not about every single carrier, every single right. insurer. Right. Um, and, and I think the other piece of this, and this, I think, is actually a, a pretty fundamental disagreement between how I think about cyber insurance and how some of the folks who sell it think about it really has to do with sort of what I encompass in that umbrella. So for instance, I talk about denials under property and casualty policies, right? After the NotPetya attack, some of the companies that get claims denied are filing under property policies that explicitly include damage to data caused by malware, right? That's something that you can negotiate in, in your property policy, or you could negotiate in your property policy at the time. And to me, if you have a property and casualty policy that covers the damage caused by malware, that's a form of cyber insurance, right? It's not just cyber insurance. It covers lots of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I write about that and sort of the ways in which insurers are refusing to cover certain kinds of state-sponsored cyber attacks and stuff like that, I think some of the cyber insurers say, well, that's not even cyber insurance, right? Like you're, you're sort of conflating too much in this space. Whereas I think one of the challenges we have is that we think about cyber insurance in too siloed a way. Right. We think it's just kind of its own thing and it's totally separate from all these other types of insurance. When in fact, it's a set of risks that implicate everything that implicate our property, that implicate our cars, that implicate sort of all of these other areas. Yeah. And, and so I'm sort of somebody who believes in thinking about it more expansively. Whereas some of these, these firms really want to say, you know, this is, this is one specific product line and you shouldn't sort of be mixing up all of these other types of insurance with it. So do you know how big the, global cyber insurance market is? Do you have a number? Um, So it was about $6 billion in premiums annually four years ago. Now we're probably looking at a little under 10 billion. Mm -hmm. And and going... Going up, up, but not going up as fast as it was in 2017, right? There's there's a moment when it's pretty explosive Mm -hmm. and, and then things start to sort of slow down a little, both because the carriers pull back a little bit and also because the the premiums get really high and a lot of companies are sort of a little bit more wary of, of, is this really worth it? And also, I think because some of these legal fights have put some of these companies a little bit on notice of, you know, are you telling me I'm going to pay all this money for a cyber insurance policy? And if Russia does something, I'm not even going to get coverage for that because you're going to call it an act of war. So I think there's, there's, you know, there's still growth, but it's not, it certainly hasn't shot up in the way people were predicting five years ago. As the box that it covers gets maybe a little tighter, a little smaller. Yeah, I think that's right. I have one last question for you, but I, I just want to say two things first as we as we reach our conclusion. One is you have to come back next time we want just to do stories. Oh, I would love that so much. That'd be fun. Let's do that because I can't imagine the stories, right? And we really want to hear those. And so does our audience. Excellent. We'll do that. Not only is there entertainment in that, sadly, but also there's there's learning uh, to happen through that. So, w- so we'll make sure that Alicia gets you booked soon to come back and 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 do. We're going to do a cybersecurity, cyber insurance story time with you that we would love. I would love that more than anything. The, the last thing I'll ask you is this, which is a question that you finish your book with, okay? And that is, is cyber risk different? Gosh, I'm trying to think of a really succinct and, and pithy way to answer that question, which has you know been the motivating question for this project in many ways. And I, I do come back to the answer that it is. I come back to the answer that 
this is a different set of risks and it's different in that it is not a single set of risks. It's different in that you cannot, to my mind, list out every cyber risk and put it in a policy and say, we're keeping this separate from everything else. You have to Mm -hmm. be thinking about it in the context of every other type of risk. You have to be thinking about it in terms of how it's going to interact with your auto insurance line. You have to be thinking about it in terms of how it's interacting with your property and casualty insurance line. And because of that, because of that interconnectedness, right? just as we sort of talk about the interconnectedness of the internet and how it links together all of these different companies and users and individuals, I think these risks are really interconnected in ways that are very scary for insurers. Because the last thing you want is a risk that could affect all of your policyholders all at once because they're all sharing the same computer networks. They're all using the same software. Um, But that makes it all the more important that we think about sort of some of these risk sharing tools, some of the ways in which insurance can help protect us against the ways in which all of our risks are now linked to each other's. Mm -hmm. I love that. So when someone wants to read your book or get their hands on it, tell us how they do that. Um, It's out from MIT Press. You can order it from their website. You can order it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual suspects. Um, It's, I I dare say, one of the only, if not the only books on cyber insurance policy out there. So I believe that you will not be too confused in looking at that range of offerings. And that's Josephine Wolf, the author of Cyber Insurance Policy. I love it. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you, guys. This was really wonderful. Well, look at us. We're a book review podcast. What do you think of that? We, I have always wanted to be a book review podcast. We can't thank Josephine enough. And what a wonderful thing to have a resource like that in our network. Mm-hmm. A legitimate 100% authority on this whole thing. And like like we said, we, we talked with her a little bit afterwards. She is going to come back to do a stories episode. And so you'll look forward to that. And as we always look forward to doing these and sharing them with you, our loyal audience. Thank you for being with us. And until next time. Goodbye, everybody.